This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malad. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 3. This season, you will get the privilege of meeting the formerly incarcerated and those who mentor, employ, and restore hope into their lives. I am partnering with Defy Ventures to bring you this dynamic series that will teach us what the journey looks like for life after prison. Gillian Viatoro, who goes by Ian, is my conversation partner today. He was born into a family that migrated to the U.S. from Central America before he was even born. His educated father left behind privilege and family in order to start out fresh on his own in the North. They ended up settling in L.A., where Ian now works as the National Operations Manager for Defy Ventures. He has an intimate understanding of the prison system, as he also spent 12 years incarcerated. Not only did he better himself, earning a total of five college degrees, impressive, while in prison, he also had a hand in changing the entire educational system at the maximum security facility where he resided, all because somebody believed in him. We have a very compelling discussion about the importance of education inside the walls of prison, emotional literacy, and the hands-on, life-changing work of Defy Ventures. Ian, I am so excited to get to visit with you today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to share your story with us. Of course, thank you for uh, inviting me on here. I'd like to get to know you on a very easy level first. We will jump in on a really unthreatening topic, which is time travel. So if you could travel anywhere in history at any time, where would you want to go and why? I think I would have to say, and this, this may sound strange um, because of all the events of, of that, that time, but the 1930s, 1940s, I think mm-hmm. would I don't know. I've 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 had this dream uh, when I was when I was younger. I always wanted to be a pilot. Like that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. Uh, it obviously didn't happen, but uh, you know, you of course the movies glamorize uh, the pilots of the era, especially yes. World War Two and all that. So I know it's it's glamorized that way, and I'm sure it, it must have been a very very difficult time. But for some reason, like that time and. The possibility of maybe me being a pilot back then, it just, it's always interested me. So I'd have to say 1930s, 1940s, just, just because of that. Now, 1930s, 1940s in the United States or anywhere in the world? I'd say in the United States. And again, okay. like, w- with all of its challenges of mm-hmm. the time, I'm sure, especially me as a, a person of color, I'm sure I would have had so many challenges. Who knows if I would have even been able to be a pilot, right? Mm-hmm. But um Again, my passion for flying, I think, uh, is what attracts me to that time. And um, yeah. That's pretty cool. So did you always have an interest in airplanes and flying, even as a kid? I'd love to hear what your childhood was like and your home of origin and just some of your awesome, wonderful memories and then some of the 
hardships and some of the things that were more challenging for you? Sure. I was always that kid with the toy helicopters, the toy airplanes. I'm the oldest, by the way. So I have, oh, I have two uh, siblings. My mother and father, it, it, it's myself. I have a younger brother and then a kid sister. And then from my father's second marriage, I have uh, three other siblings. So half brother, I'm sorry, half sister and two half brothers. Uh-huh. Um, so I was the oldest. And as the oldest, the eldest, you, you play by yourself when you're a kid. So that was me just playing mm-hmm. helicopters and airplanes. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, uh, mm-hmm. in San Fernando Valley area for the most part. Very typical childhood for the most part. Um, mom and dad. Again, I was the oldest. Uh, had a dog. Yeah, I, I'd like to think, and from what I remember, I was a, I was a happy kid. Um, I was always, every, since, since, I, since I was little, since I was small, uh, young, everyone assumed that I was very intelligent and I was I've been told that my entire life even when I've disappointed people like how can you be so smart and be so dumb at the same time (laughs) I I was that I was that kid I was always looking over my dad's shoulder my dad did a lot of he's an engineer he's he's and he's he did a lot of property management so he could fix Mm -hmm. just about anything in a house anything and so I was that kid who was like standing behind him looking over Mm -hmm. his shoulder watching him fix and replace things and handing him tools and learning myself so to Mm -hmm. this day I could pretty much fix anything in a house and build just about anything myself. What a gift. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was, it was fun. For me, it was fun. I would, you know, just kind of follow him around and just learn. Um, yeah. My, my parents uh, immigrated. They migrated to the United States uh, in the early to mid-1970s. Central America, they're from, from Guatemala to be specific. Okay. Uh, so, you know, English was their second language, but my father... His background, even in Central America, like he completed school. So when he when he when he arrived in the United States here in California, he jumped right into learning learning English. So uh, my father spoke English ever since I could remember. So uh, even though it was my second language as well, because at home my mom for the most part spoke Spanish, um, I learned a lot from him. I interacted with him a lot. Uh, we were very very close. Again, that's why I would follow him around and and learn mm-hmm. everything from him, like just looking over his shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. My parents have, even early on, would share stories of like their journey to the north. Wow! And it's and it's very similar to what you would hear a person tell uh, nowadays because wow. of the route that they took, taking uh, uh-huh. a train that would take you pretty much across Mexico. And Mexico, Mexico is a really big country, mm-hmm. um, and the predators are along the way. They've always been there. You know, people that prey on immigrants. Uh, they rob them, they assault them, they kill them, they rape them. It's still, it, it was a very, very dangerous time even then. Well, he didn't seem to let that stop him from doing and becoming his best version of himself, did it? Not at all. In That's fact, incredible. What character your dad has. Yeah, in fact, you know, his, his background, uh, my dad's side of the family, they were, they were well off. As opposed to to what people usually assume, everyone who comes this way, or who came this way, mm-hmm. because they were poor or because yeah. they, you know, they had nothing to eat and they were just looking for work. You know, my father, he did come to this country looking for opportunity, but he had opportunity where he came from. It's, he finished school, which is mm-hmm. incredibly difficult, especially if you come from rural areas. But, you know, the family was well off and he just, he wanted to become his own man. He wanted to, you know, make his own way in life. Mm-hmm. He figured that the only way that he could really stand out would be to make the journey north and come to the United States. And that's exactly what he did. And, you know, he came with that mindset and with a plan. And it's why as soon as he got here, he 
learn the language and you know work graveyard the graveyard shift cleaning offices uh, mm -hmm. while he learned and went to school and and, mm -hmm. and learned all the you know the trade and and the skills that he needed to to advance in life so mm. so this is the role model you have and are looking up to and aspire to be so no wonder everyone thinks you're automatically smart <laughs> the, the, the the dumb smart guy at one point right but yeah, it's, uh, I definitely, I've always looked up to my father. Um, you know, I, ha I've ha I had really good memories uh, of us together when I was little. Uh, unfortunately, when I was uh, 11 years old, uh, turning 11 years old, my, my parents separated. Mm. It was very abrupt. It was very traumatic for me, the way that it occurred. Uh, mm. It left this huge hole in my life. Mm -hmm. and at the time, you know, my brother was very, very young. My brother is four years younger than I am. And so, you know, he was trying to understand what was happening. And I was the, I was the eldest. I was, I was the oldest. And there was nothing that I could do. And I was at an age where I was transitioning. I was going through puberty. I was, it was, it was during this time when I was entering adolescence. Mm -hmm. Uh, and moving out of just being a kid and I went from being this happy kid and you know coming from this great home and all mm -hmm. of a sudden everything is just shattered and broken and there's chaos everywhere and everyone's angry and everyone's hurt everyone is sad and it it, it was just one of those life events that truly changed the traje trajectory in my life mm. how did you process that in some ways, I, I didn't. Uh, I had not matured enough. I didn't have that emotional literacy to, to deal with it. And unfortunately, because my parents were con consumed in their own conflict, my feelings and the way that I was processing things, it was unfortunately neglected. And so yeah. I was left with just kind of standing on the sidelines, watching everything burn to the ground and wondering, what the heck did I do wrong? What can I do for my brother because his reaction was that he would lock himself in my dad's closet and, you know because his dad's clothes was gone and it was just it was very very mm. very dramatic and mm. i i was the oldest and again it's been a blessing and a curse being perceived as someone who's intelligent because mm -hmm. i then was expected to pick up responsibilities that i wasn't quite ready to pick up yes I was then dependent on to do things that I wasn't, I was, I was, I, I should have still been a kid, yeah. but the circumstances changed everything. And, um, I had to, I had to grow up really, really fast. I didn't really learn how to process my emotions. And so I was emotionally illiterate. Like I, I would suppress things. I mm -hmm. developed very bad coping mechanisms, ways to cope with mm -hmm. my emotions, no matter what it was mm -hmm. and what that trauma and what that life event uh, did to me, mm -hmm. you know, eventually led me to, to gravitate towards, you know, the, the, the wrong crowd, kids that were basically in the same situation, same circumstances at home, single mm -hmm. parent homes that where they, nobody was really watching them. And I just, I, I kind of just became one of those kids as well. You know, as hard as my parents worked, I still lived in a neighborhood that was predominantly Latino, Hispanic, and, um, you know, not, not in a rich area. And so there were plenty of people that I could gravitate to that, that I, could kind of, I, I could relate to. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, 
you know, when you come from these, when you come from these, this, this type of background, uh, it's very easy for the streets to consume you. Early in life, when you learn these things and when you experience these things, it shapes how you, how you view yourself, how you view the world, yes. and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, the right and wrong. And it's not always right. Mm-hmm. And so I did things that I should not have done. I affiliated myself with people I shouldn't have affiliated with myself with. I, I started drinking when I was 12. Oh, no. Yeah. Talk about unhealthy coping mechanisms. Oh, yeah. I experimented with just about any drug that you can think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that happened very early on in my life. Like and an escape, right? It, it was definitely an escape. It, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't so much for the, the high itself. It was just to kind of numb things down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was, I was functional. I, very early on, I was, I was forced to, to, to mature and be responsible with a lot of things. Um, had a full-time job when I was 16, 17 years old. And it's the reason why mm-hmm. I dropped out of high school. Uh, I didn't complete school because of oh that. no, I was I was working, and then at one point I was working two full time jobs, and in between, I was running the streets, doing things that I shouldn't be doing. Looking back at it now, it was it's so strange because for the, mm-hmm. for the most part, when you're out in the streets doing things you're not supposed to be doing, you don't have that sense of responsibility where you're like ah, I got to stop because I have to be at work at six a.m. You don't, no. nobody really thought that way, but I did, and I I functioned somehow. It sounds like you were still making some positive choices along with some uh, hurtful choices towards yourself and others during this time. What were the choices that ultimately led up to you making the choices that got you into uh, prison? I've always believed that I could do more. I could be more. I always believed that there was something out there that I was supposed to be doing the right thing. And mm-hmm. even then I felt that sense of responsibility to stay on, stay on track to see where doing the right thing would lead me. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I was arrested uh, for the first time when I was 14, 15, um, had, you know, plenty of run-ins with, with, with law enforcement early on when I was 19 and I was, I, I did, I think six or seven months in County jail. And when I came back, I, I, I really, I wanted to find something that would substitute, right, what I was doing to kind of make myself, my, make myself feel better. Mm-hmm. So I gravitated towards religion. And, and when I did that, I met somebody, right? And again, I was very young. Long story short, I gravitated towards religion. I met somebody and I ended up marrying her. Uh, maybe nine or 10 months after I met her. Very, very young. Uh, four months after that, she was pregnant with our daughter. And so Claire was born. And when I found out that she was pregnant, that I was going to have a kid, that, that really shook me. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I remember having that moment of like, oh crap, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be responsible for another human being, like for real this time. Like it's not my brother. It's not, uh-huh. my, it's not anyone else, but like it's my own kid. And so I made a really strong effort to move away from the people that I was I was around the people that I was affiliated with. I made a really strong effort to leave all of those bad habits that I had developed over time. Mm-hmm. And again, using, um, you know, I'm sorry to say religion as a crutch to do that for the most part. I, I excelled at what I was doing as far as work goes. I actually started making really good money. Um, I became that, that family guy. Wow. So everybody looking in would just think, hey, Ian's on the straight and narrow. Everything's going smoothly. 
Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what everyone said. Uh, but I mean, inside, you yeah, weren't feeling that. I mean, and we're talking about you know nineteen, let's say nineteen ninety three, ninety four, ninety five. Mm -hmm. You have a twenty three to twenty five year old who's making almost a hundred k a year, working really hard but wow. very long. And so that and that was me. You know, for those four or five years, I think that I was content. I was, mm -hmm. I was content where, where, where I was. I, I, I was able to provide for my family. I had a family of my own. Uh, and then when my daughter was just shy of six years old, her mother and I divorced. We separated. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind that when that happened with my parents, I never really processed any of that. I never mm -hmm. learned how to deal with my emotions. I did the wrong things and I developed the wrong coping mechanisms mm -hmm. and grown up Ian, somewhat grown up Ian gravitated right back to all of those things. Oh no, it was divorce 2.0, just the same thing, just in a bigger body. And it was very painful because I had always told myself like, I will, I won't, I, that won't happen to me. Uh -huh. like, I won't be the, I won't be the, the guy that divorces and like leaves his family. And yeah, that just wasn't supposed to be me, but. Oh, you must have been so upset with yourself because of those expectations you had. Oh, I was upset with her. Oh, and with her? Yes, I was yeah. upset. <laughs> I was also upset with myself, of course, but she messed up the plan. And it, yeah. was, it was really, really difficult for me. And I, I wanted to avoid all of that. And mm -hmm. I wanted to numb everything again. And I, I did it the only way that I knew how. Mm -hmm. so I gravitated back to, I, I kind of reverted back to, to the young teenage me. And that eventually led me to make some very, very poor choices. I'll, I'll never justify the things that I've done by saying, oh, everything was like in a haze and everything was just so foggy. It really was. But still, it, they were my choices. It was a mm -hmm. choice that I made. And it was, it was because it was the only choice that I knew how to make. When I was uh, 27, 28, uh, I was uh, sentenced to... 12 years in state prison from a potential sentence of 96 years, which is what I was facing originally. Oh my. Yeah. Uh, I was again, very, very devastated. I was very, very sad because, you know, I essentially self-destructed is it's, that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. I refused to, in my mind, right. Give her anything. Mm -hmm. and so I decided that in order for me to do that, I would just burn everything to the ground. And it was just such a stupid way of thinking. Literally one, or figuratively? No, figuratively. Again, in hindsight, it was just, it was so stupid, so immature. But it's, it's helped shape who I am today. And so mm -hmm. as difficult and hurtful as that was, that whole entire process, um, it taught me some very, very valuable lessons. How... And when were you able to identify those past traumas and heal from them? Was that while you were in prison? Uh, was that while you had some time with a counselor or psychologist, uh, a friend? When did you come to this realization? Because now you have the verbiage for it. You know, I had no emotional intelligence. I was self-destructing. I didn't know how to cope. But there comes a time when we just light bulb goes off right when was your light bulb moment i'd love to say oh as soon as i got to prison like you know that light bulb turned on for me but that's not true um 
the first half of my term. I was very much that stereotypical prisoner, the stereotypical gang prison gang member. You would never know it now. I conformed mm. to my environment. I made all the adjustments I needed to make in order to not just survive but thrive in that environment. Mm-hmm. That that is who that is who I was for five six years, until it was maybe my third or fourth time being isolated. I was in in segregation, which is I was facing mm-hmm. a short term, which is most commonly known as solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. I was standing in an intake tank, uh, ready to go to ready to get assessed, ready to go to the shoe, basically. Mm-hmm. And when you're there uh, in the hole or in ADSEG, whatever you want to call it you're only allowed to have flip-flops, boxers, and a t-shirt. That's Mm -hmm. it. And so there I was, right, with none of my possessions, Mm -hmm. the possessions you're allowed to have, you know, standing at this this door with holes on it. And I'm hearing a conversation down the tier. It's 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 a ridiculous conversation that just makes no sense to me. And I'm standing there, and I realized how unhappy I was. Not just with my situation, but with myself. Mm-hmm. That feeling of me knowing that I could be more and do more, like it just came back and it hit me really, really hard. And I cried. And I cried because I realized then that I had ruined my life, that I very well could have done so many other things in life. Mm-hmm. And here I was after you know being picked up for doing something violent in prison. Mm-hmm standing in flip-flops and boxers with nothing else to my name. I was miserable and I was angry and I was hurt. And I, I was angry with myself because I, 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 I put myself there. You know, I made this decision in my mind of when I got out of there, and by that I mean uh, segregation, to do something that I hadn't been able to do. And I remind you that I didn't graduate high school. Mm-hmm. I, I started working. I, I prioritized other things over education. I never finished it. Mm-hmm. And it always rubbed me the wrong way because people would always say like, yo, you're smart. But I didn't have the credentials to prove it. Mm-hmm. I may have been street smart and just, you know, had, had this incredible, like common sense that I, well, I call common sense, but people were like, oh man, that's, I, I decided that I was going to correct something. I was going to finish something that I had not been able to finish. And that was my high school diploma. And so I said, you know what, when I get out of here, I'm going to get my GED. And that's exactly what I did. I did that in like three months. I, I got, wow. got all the materials that I needed. I read through the materials. I signed up for the exam and I went and took the exam and I passed. I got a great score and I was like, this was easy. And that was like the first step, right? Uh-huh. Baby and steps. Yeah. Baby steps. Yeah. It was the first step. And, I, and here I am, you know, in, in a classroom inside prison. Now standing in line a few months later, waiting to waiting for the one of the instructor instructors in prison to give me my GED diploma because they're you know they don't mail it to you they have they call you up to give it to you mm-hmm. but it's not like a ceremony or anything like that they just call you up and you go into a classroom and they're like here sign here and they give it to you mm-hmm. so here I am you know I'm standing in line and there's a couple of guys there who are also receiving their diploma and one of one of the guys in front of me makes a comment and he's like. He makes, he says something along the lines of like, now that I have my GED, my high school diploma, I'm going to college, right? And he says this, and there was a guard in the room who was standing at the door, was looking out, 
when the person in front of me said that, not and looked, but he looked at me. He thought that maybe I had said it, but he had this look on his face, like this look of not just disbelief, but of, of like disgust, almost like disgust, like seriously saying you're going to go to college just because you got your GED. And I w- I've, I've always been very defiant. I've, been, I've always been very stubborn. I've always, I've always been, and I, I hate to admit this, but I've always had a temper. And that was one of, the, the, one of the other things that I had to work on. And it just really made me angry. Like, it upset me that he looked at me that way. It was like, like, you can't do that. Like, there's no way that you can do that. Like, you don't deserve to do that. I bet that was your motivation. Oh, it was. I was still that person. My mentality was still that way. Yeah. It was like, I'm going to show you. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. In the facility where I was housed at the time, it was a 180. So it was a maximum level. Secu- it was a maximum security prison in California. Mm. At the time, it was considered the most violent prison yard in the state of California. There, were, there was a college, a prison college program, a correspondence program that nobody really knew anything about. I had to ask several people in order to just, just to be pointed in the right direction to remember that would give me access to the college coordinator. Long story short, there was only three people taking college courses on that facility, and I became the fourth. In the entire prison? The entire facility. In in that whole yard, there was only four people taking correspondence college. We could go so many directions with that as far as feeling like people are redeemable and education is your way out and all these different things. And look at three people out of the whole group of people are trying to better their life. That is... That says so much more than what, than what you're saying. So I, I embarked on my college education, uh, correspondence courses. I had to buy my own books. I had to pay for my own materials. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. So in case your audience is not aware, a state prisoner is not eligible for Pell Grants. And I, no one was eligible for any Pell Grants or any financial aid or assistance with education higher education in prison until some changes that were made fairly recently, which again, doesn't cover everything, but there are, there's, there are things like the second chance pilot program, uh, which I believe is now transitioning into an actual program that, that gives funding for higher education mm-hmm. in prison mm-hmm. works. Uh, but back then, no way, no way. You had to After- pay for your own college education Absolutely. in prison. After, after the 1994 Violent Crime Act passed, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, gave birth to the three strikes law, all mm-hmm. of that, financial aid, federal financial aid for prisoners was completely taken away. So just to give you an idea, in the, light, in the late 1970s, every single facility in the state of California had a college program, in-prison college program. After 1994, they vanished because there was just no more funding for it. That was me. I was, you know, mm-hmm. instead of getting a package or getting, you know, getting a care package, mm-hmm. going to canteen to, to buy, you know, the simple things in life that would make my life a little more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I was like putting together money to buy books. And th- that's always been my drive. That's, I've always been a very motivated person, very committed and very passionate person. You know, I, I didn't even know what I was going to major in. I just started taking some of the general education courses. Uh, long story short, I ended up uh, earning my first degree in social science just under two years after that. Um, I ended up earning five college degrees while I was incarcerated. No I have way. a degree in social and behavioral sciences. I have a business degree. I have a, uh, a science and mathematics degree. 
And then just to be fancy, I have an arts and humanities just because well, I want to learn about Because why not? You are so motivated. Wow. That inspires me. That's incredible. And during this whole time, I was a certain type of person. I, again, remember, I, I conformed and I fit into my environment. But even less than a year in, you know, I had my, my, my head buried in books and I was learning all these things. And mm -hmm. mine, my first, my first major was social sciences, mm -hmm. social and behavioral science was my second one. And so I was learning all the, the social models, right? I was learning psychology. I was learning how to view a person, how to view society. And I've told this to people plenty of times, like prison is a sociologist, like Disneyland. It's like, oh, the, I bet. it's their dream because you, there are so many stories, so many mm -hmm. sets of circumstances that have led mm -hmm. you there that it just blows your mind. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the public, Society in general, I think, when they think about a prisoner, when they think about a person who's been convicted of a crime, they have this stereotypical, you know, idea of who that person is. Yes. They're just people who were shaped and influenced by certain sets of circumstances, things that impacted and influenced their lives that kind of led them to where they are and who they are. I started seeing the world different. I started seeing people around me differently. And most importantly, I started seeing myself differently as I learned, as I educated myself, as mm -hmm. I, 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 I essentially just started seeing the world and everything in it through a different lens. Well, that's what education does, provides for us, doesn't it? That yeah. ability to self-reflect, that ability to look through different lenses at, at, like you were just so superbly explaining the different experiences that everybody has come into this one situation with. And uh, that can't help but change you once you start seeing all of this. I did not fit in anymore. In my mind, I was like, I don't belong here. Mm -hmm. And I, I started the very painful process of unraveling my life and understanding myself mm -hmm. and pinpointing the life events that had shaped or influenced the direction of my life. That came first, the understanding understanding myself, understanding my circumstances, my parents' circumstances, the mm -hmm. things that they had experienced when they were children, mm -hmm. uh, the cultural aspect of it all, the traditions, all of these yes. things that started piecing together and really started to understand in my head who I was and what had led me to become the person that I was. And I also, it also helped me to identify things that were good, things, qualities and characteristics that I had that made me what society would consider a good person, a great person. That's I would imagine that in prison, most people have or carry around a sense of shame because I don't know that they're constantly told, you can do this, you can be more, you can achieve things, you can change your mindset. I don't know that that is prevalent in prisons, being having these kind of affirming words. Is that true or is that false? It's absolutely true. Uh, labels. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody conforms to labels. That's just yes. the reality of it. And in prison, there aren't a whole lot of positive labels. They're all negative. All negative. So what are you going to aspire to? I mean, you have a very low bar. So you wanna, have no wonder. <laughs> you want to be good or you want to be the best, but you want to be the best of the bad. Mm. Because those are the expectations. Those are the, the type of labels that exist mm -hmm. in the environment. Mm -hmm the bad, the violent, 
that's what drives in that environment because that's mm. that is what is that's what's admired in that mm-hmm. environment. and so mm-hmm. the, the labels definitely impact the person the way that they act the way that they feel mm-hmm. the way that they they everyone just internalizes those labels and it's just a reality and i even i understood that for myself because i i'm, I'm gen- genuinely a softy to, to be honest with you i can't believe i'm going to admit this to you but like there, there are movies that sometimes make me cry mm-hmm. and like that's the type of person that i that i am like fundamentally i'm a very sensitive person but i had internalized this persona like i had created this persona mm-hmm. and i had adopted these labels and like that's who i had become right and so i i understood i broke all of those things down and i understood everything at that point and mm. the decision of slowly you know distancing myself from that persona that i had created from those labels that i mm-hmm. that i that i had internalized and i had assimilated i really focused on making myself better and unfortunately like i had education and i, I will always point to education as the one thing one thing that really turned me around mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, there's so much work that needs to be done other than just understanding it up here. Mm-hmm. There's an entire process that needs to happen in order for a person to uh, r- really heal and feel like they're on course or, or on the path for like self-actualization. This season is brought to you by Defy Ventures. They are a national nonprofit with a beautiful vision of cutting recidivism in half by leveraging entrepreneurship to increase economic opportunity and to transform lives. Defy's programs are helping currently and formerly incarcerated people across this country defy the odds by providing pathways that lead to employment, entrepreneurship, and a successful reentry please visit Defy's website at defyventures.org and sign up for their mailing list to stay in the loop. Links to Defy's website and social media can be found in the show notes. When, when I was learning, as I was learning, and again, I was in a very hostile environment, people started to notice. And one of the persons that noticed my change, the way that I, I started interacting with staff, the way that I started carrying myself and the way that mm-hmm. people spoke, right, was uh, the captain. There was a captain on the facility where, where I was housed. And I had not really realized just how much he had noticed. And one day he pulled me to the side and he's like, Via Toro, come here. And he's like, what's going on with you? Is your family okay? He just started asking me questions. And I was like, no, my family's great. Thank you for asking why. And he told me, like, I, I, I've noticed that you're different. Um, and I'm curious to understand what happened. Mm-hmm. And then that was funny to me because I was like, like, bro, I'm just making myself better. Like, what's your problem? You're singling me out. I just, you know, I'm, I'm doing That's this. an oddity, apparently, in that environment, yeah. huh? <laughs> right. And then later on, I realized, like, oh, like, yeah, I guess he really did notice something different. I started talking to him about... Thing, observations, things that I had observed on the facility. I mentioned that like education and learning up here is not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, when I had this conversation with, with, with the captain, uh, there were four rehabilitative programs on that facility. Your very basic AA, NA, CGA. And they were, I'm sorry to say, just a means to 
to pass messages. Nobody really took these things seriously in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a way to get out of a cell for an hour and go into a classroom and, and go interact with people. Because again, mm-hmm. remember, it was maximum security, very restrictive, uh, not a whole lot of movement, very, a lot of control. And so, you know, I explained to him how I wish that there were more programs that covered or addressed, you know, the different needs that people may have things that they needed to explore to make themselves better, just to give them just an opportunity for them to even explore these things. Right. Mm -hmm. The captain hired me. He gave me a job in the program office uh, as a clerk. And it was very different. That's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very different times. There was a lot of responsibilities that they actually allowed uh, inmates, a prisoner to to take on uh, Mm -hmm. in, in the administration in the program office. And so that's where I started started to go to work. In the meantime, while even while I was going to college, I was taking computer classes in the back, getting my Microsoft certifications and all that. So I was really good with the computer, uh, which came in handy for, you know, drafting whatever it is that they needed me to draft or just mm-hmm. helping them, whatever it is that they needed me to help with. At the time, I was uh, nearing the end of like my science and mathematics uh, degree. And one of the classes that I that had really stood out to me was statistics. Again, no computers, no software program, no app to help you with the calculations. Yeah, no, yeah. Everything was longhand. Oh, lucky you. And so I decided that I was going to start applying the things that I was learning to maybe create some opportunities, maybe make that environment better. At minimum, create opportunities for people that were maybe thinking the same thing that I was thinking and just couldn't really voice that because of, well, the environment. You want it to, you need to belong, right? And if you, you're an outside, outsider, it's not a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Long story short, when I was hired, we had four of the very basic rehabilitative programs. When I left that facility, and I left four years after I, should, I could have left because I could have went to lower levels, but I, I stayed there because of the work I was doing. Wow. When I left, we had 22 rehabilitative programs and an in-prison college program that began with a cohort of 24 inmate students on my facility for which I track attendance, anything you can think of. And today is considered one of the largest in-prison college programs in the United States with professors going in to teach uh, with roughly about 2,200 students now in the Central Valley in California. That is such a beautiful testament to putting action to what you are learning. Like you told the captain that what can I do with all this? It needs to be more than just in my head. It, it, it really was. And it, throughout the process, even without me thinking about it, it continued to shape and mold me to, to who I am today. I did it because I enjoyed it. I did it because I was able to, to see results. And it was a very hostile environment. And mm-hmm. they, you know, the criminal justice system, law enforcement, the unions, it's all politicized. There are mm-hmm. these very strong political inclinations especially mm-hmm. in the Central Valley in California. I mean, it's very, very difficult to convince even an officer, a regular guard, uh, that, you know, rehabilitative programs work and education actually work to kind of push back against the mentality of like, mm-hmm. why should our taxpayer monies pay for this? Inmate? For sure. I have to pay for my own kids, you know, college education out of my own pocket. That's the type of mentality that we had to work against. We ha- I had all these conversations. I was very fortunate. Uh, this captain he made a huge impact in my life. And I don't think he'll ever know how much he, mm. how much he had in my life. Because he believed in you. Yeah. He saw he, you. He was very progressive. And what made it very interesting was that prior to that assignment, he was a, uh, an institutional gang unit lieutenant. 
So really, release within the within the prison. Like he was, he was, he was like the he was the cop that was going to come after you if you were doing something bad in prison. That that was his role before he he assumed command on that facility. So it was very interesting because you would have thought that he was very anti-prisoner. He was always trying to find something to bust you for, but he turned out to be very very progressive. And it I sounds have, like you influenced each other. You know, instead of seeing him like this, this badge, this person of authority, this, mm-hmm. this person that was controlling or, or who had me confined, I saw the human aspect. I saw, I saw mm. him as a person, and that man had a huge heart and fantastic leader. I mean, he taught me so much just, just through observation. And keep in mind, like, me, be, me saying this in that environment would have been bad news for me, like to admire the, the type of the character. Of I imagine. <laughs> but that's how I felt after a while. I was like, I had that proximity. And it wasn't just him. There were other staff members that had been perceived that, that had, even I had perceived them a certain way that as I got to know them better and see them, you know, without that mask on, they were just people. And even the ones that had this really tough mentality, they were just misguided because they just didn't know any better. They, you know, they had these beliefs because that's what they had been taught. Like the whole time. I love how you said they were just misguided. Isn't that true of all of us? Absolutely. We put on these masks and we make these assumptions of the other person in a different part of our world or out of our bubbles. And we think we already know what's going on. And just like your social science experiment, even the guards, even the captains, even the people in charge, they're all going through something as well. And we can all make positive impacts on each other. Why are we okay with continuing these negative ones? I don't know. Tell me, Mr. Social Scientist, what is your professional opinion? <laughs> no, I think, I think in prison it's that us versus them mentality mm-hmm. uh, reign supreme. I mean... Mm. The, the you know the officers uh, are always guarded they're very defensive they're they're always fearful basically that's that's what it boils down to there's there there's always a fear of something happening to them which is completely understandable uh and then on the inmate side like there is this sense of injustice of uh, things that happen you know in dark corners that nobody ever hears about and mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do about it because mm-hmm. you know the other side is perceived as their own gang and that's that's mm. how it works. And so it's a, it's a us versus them mentality. And there's this huge divide in between and obviously the labels, right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the roles that they must play uh, and the boundaries that they must keep. And, you know, it's policy, it's regulation. You cannot shake that person's hand because that's, you know, it's regulation, it's policy. It goes against the rules. You're not supposed to over familiarize yourself. Yeah. In other, in other words, humanize a prisoner. There you go. Hiding behind law and order in order not to humanize, not to see the person behind that label of prisoner. Right. And the justification is that you just have to keep yourself safe at all times. And in order to avoid any situation that might put you in harm's way, you follow these, these guidelines and you, you just, you don't act like a person. Mm -hmm. it. It doesn't seem like you hold bitterness or anger. How did you release that? I, I, because I understood it and it was my proximity and my direct observation that I realized like, that's what it is. Like it's fear. And Uh at the end of the day, these men and women, they want to get back to their families. It's a job. They want to get back to their own lives. They don't want to, they don't want to get hurt. They don't want to get involved in the prison Mm -hmm. politics and all that stuff because 
at the end of the day, they're going home. That's just mm-hmm. they're clock out and they're going to go live their, their real, their, their lives. Yeah. Um, and that, that's not always the case because, you know, correctional officers actually have a really high suicide rate. Uh, that, that environment does something to them psychologically as well. So you can only imagine the people that live there 24 seven. It's not an easy job. I mean, there's a lot of stress involved and again, it's all about how it's all about perception, right? I'm interested to learn how you got a job very similar to what you were doing in prison as a program manager with and outside of prison with Defy Ventures, but now you're voluntarily going back into prisons. Are you not? I, I do. Uh, so I'm the national operations manager for Defy, and I'll explain a little bit more about what my role is. Okay. I was exposed to Defy uh, maybe four years, about four years before I came home. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, we were actively sourcing programs. This was during the building period of when like, we were actively seeking programs that would address emotional intelligence, would address mm-hmm. substance abuse, but in a different way, mm-hmm. uh, restorative justice, like all sorts of different, we were trying to cover different things, including job readiness, uh, career development, if, mm-hmm. if it was even possible. And the captain at the time, he called me into his office, like, hey, I found this flyer, what do you think? And it was a flyer for Defy Ventures. Uh, and I read it, and the first thing that I saw was entrepreneurship. And I was like, this is brilliant. It's brilliant because there are tons of natural born hustlers in prison. Like yeah, the hustle, people, right? <laughs> 10 people right now that have built these very intricate network, like this very intricate network to, to sell things they're not supposed to be selling. The risk management sucks because they got caught, right? Mm-hmm. But they're natural hustlers. Like they, they know business. They just, they just don't know business, if that makes sense. You know, I, I, I read the flyer. I, and I looked at it and I was like, yo, Captain, like, we need this. Like, we have to have this here. It strikes and, me that he asked your opinion. I mean, look at how far the relationship has come, where there's that trust now, the humanity back and forth that he valued your opinion on this flyer. And it was, and it was a balance on his part, right? Like, he, uh-huh. it was definitely a balance. There were times when there definitely had to be like, okay, let's, let's, let's reset some boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I was fully conscious of, like, those moments. And it was like... Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Because of course, like that was the environment. I would put together formal reports about the progress of specific programs that we had integrated on that facility, whether they were working or not, or, or feedback that we were getting from the population on, on its effectiveness. Or, mm-hmm. And then just, just, just general dialogue and discussions about how to even measure efficacy, right? And before Defy, I had already, remember when I said that I wanted to start using statistics? Yes. To, to support expansions of program. Well, my position there had actually allowed me to uh, have access or at least view rule violation report, which is essentially crime data on that facility. Coupled with my efforts and my work in uh, sourcing, integrating, launching, promoting rehabilitative programs on the yard, the program data, Mm -hmm. I then started collecting sets of crime data and program data. This was already in full swing. I was already building data sets uh, when, when Defy Ventures came along. When we reached out to Defy, the response was, we're so sorry, but you're too far away and we don't have funding. Our reach doesn't go out that far out at this time. Mm-hmm. We weren't the type and the captain was not the type to take no for an answer. Uh, and so, and again, this speaks volumes to the type of person he was. Mm-hmm. We were so adamant that we needed that program there that 
he allowed me to gather 150 men on that facility, stand under a guard post, and then he sent a camera up to the guard on the tower and he instructed, we, we had artists on the yard make this huge banner that said, KVSP, we want the FI. And it was That's incredible. Oh my goodness. And, and here's the guard, he's up on the tower, he's like, say cheese, and like everybody's like holding the banner and there's uh-huh. guys behind it. And we send in this picture of all these men in a level. How can they say no now? (laughs) And so Defy came to the yard. And they Mm -hmm. said that that was very impressive. Obviously, Mm. Defy in here. And so we found a way to put together the funds, a budget, to serve this facility. We we launched the first cohort of Defy there. Uh, I went through the cohort myself as I facilitated it. As even I myself went through the program, there's three components of the Defy program, and that's personal development, uh, job readiness, and of course, entrepreneurship, which is the vehicle, right, that propels everything. You know, I tell people, some, some of the people that, that were, were in the program, they would get a little restless with the personal development pieces. And I tell them, like, listen, in life, in business, whatever it may be, you don't know what you want until you know who you are. And that's what the personal development, the character development piece does. What fantastic advice. It teaches you it teaches you who you are so that you can identify what it is that you're passionate about, what it is that you want to do with the rest of your life. And you speak I, from experience, so absolutely. they can definitely listen to you for sure. Absolutely. It, it was by far the most impactful program that, uh, that we had on that facility. The events were, were, were fantastic. You know, at Defy, we do use entrepreneurship. Sounds so sexy, right? It sounds mm-hmm. so appealing, so attractive. Yeah. But really, we're in the business of human development. And I saw that happen. Even though that definition or that understanding of the program had not even been developed, I, when I look back, like, I saw that. Even now, I see that. Mm. You see individuals who have this, this tough exterior, right? And they're wearing these masks. And they go through the program. And one of the things that's in short, that had, that, that's in short order or short supply in prison is hope sometimes mm. uh, direction people don't mm-hmm. have direction. they're just sitting there they have no direction no hope because why should they really not, isn't anything yeah. to look forward to yeah. and so you see these cohorts start and they get these this deeper understanding of who they are they start polishing a resume that they thought should be blank but they never realize that even in prison work experience counts as a skill mm-hmm. as an experience uh all of these things they put together, they put together a personal statement that doesn't justify or excuse the crimes that they've committed, but gives them an opportunity to communicate it in a way that makes sense as to why or what drove them to do what they did or become who they had become. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, how that made it made them better. Mm. What they did at that time with that experience and what they learned from it and how they're better people now. How awesome that you're teaching that something that seems so simple, but that is hard to grasp and turn her into a self-reflection and then a statement. I want you to imagine your whole life. You've been told that you don't amount to anything, that you're bad. The labels that you've had Mm -hmm. are criminal, gang member, drug addict, the worst. And so imagine, imagine being told that and believing that your whole life and then sitting in a chair in front of somebody with power, somebody who can either give you a job or not give you a job. What do you say to that person? Like, how, 
how do you describe yourself? How do you, how do you answer that question? Tell me a little bit about, tell me more about, start off by telling me about yourself. How do you even begin? How intimidating. That's what we address right off the bat. I'm curious how being a witness to so many of these incredible transformations has changed you. It's inspiring. Another thing that we do at Defy is we bring volunteers, we bring, we bring CEOs, executives, mm-hmm. professionals, people of all, from all walks of life into prison. And, and they volunteer their time and they are essentially our coach, our business coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not uncommon for us to fill a gymnasium up with 40, 60, 70 volunteers. Oh, I love hearing that. Who, who act as, you know, they, as a mentor, as a coach, uh, giving coaching advice, doing mock interviews with our EITs. It's an all-day event uh, where a person who has maybe been incarcerated for 20, 25 years, maybe has not had a visit in maybe a decade, a person who has built these huge walls to protect themselves in a very hostile environment, Mm -hmm. they see somebody face-to-face, a person who could be defined or seen as like the, the creme of the creme, the cream of the crop of society, mm-hmm. someone who's extremely successful, looking at that person in the eye and somehow feeling human again, making a human connection, feeling like that person that's standing in front of you, like the room actually cares about you. Wow. It's extremely powerful. And they get honest feedback on the resumes, on their personal mm-hmm. statements, on their business concept summary, we actually have a competition, which is our graduating. So we have a business coaching day in the middle, and then we have a graduating event. So you have people that place, right, uh, for the, the best business ideas. But it's not just an idea. They spend seven, eight, nine, ten months building this concept, looking at financials, the way that it would be structured, mm-hmm. uh, looking at their, their, their market, their target markets, uh, their cost of goods, their co- all of these things they put together, they document. This is how they spend their time in a cell for that amount of time. In Intense focus. They have the time to focus, whereas maybe and, if they weren't the, out, yeah. And the work that they're doing gives them purpose. Yes, they're most doing, importantly. They're, they're working towards something. Uh-huh. Even if in reality it's not going to come to fruition, they find direction. They find a way to focus and find direction, and it gives them hope that when they leave that place, they will actually be able to build something. Mm-hmm. It gives them hope that when they leave that place, people like the volunteers that saw them as human and saw potential in them, they're going to meet more people like that on the outside. And they'll actually be able to achieve what everyone in the world wants. Mm. So your job is not only bringing education in to spaces where it's needed, but more importantly, you're bringing hope. You must love to get up and go to work every day. I do. And not only that, we're also, you know, we're also in the, in the business of changing perception. So uh-huh. it's not just the impact on the EITs, our entrepreneurs in training in prison or in our community programs or on our post-release programs. It also has, it also makes an impact on the volunteer. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, I'm trying to picture myself in their shoes and just wishing that there was something similar to that near me because I can't imagine how that would change me more so. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's very impactful. Uh, it's not just seeing the change or that shift or that aha moment in, you know, in the face of an EIT. It's also in the volunteers. It's individuals mm-hmm. who come into prison with this preformed ideas of 
who they're going to meet. Yes. Right. Uh, and there's a little bit of fear. There's a little bit of uncertainty. And then when they reach that moment of, oh my God, Ian, you're just a human being like I am. It's, it's, that's, that's payday. That's, that's when you have two people from what seems like two different worlds standing on the same level and just looking at each other eye to eye and realizing that they're both just human beings. I love that. That's, that is my hope for the world. That's awesome. And that's, that's what we're able to achieve in our in-prison program. I love working with the ITs. I, I love working for Defy just in general because I believe in what we do. My seat where I sit, it's, it's very interesting because I'm kind of behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, I do a lot of the data collection. collection. I do a lot of the internal, external reporting. I, I'm essentially like this cog in the middle of the national organization. Yes. That makes sure yes. that things are, are, are where they're supposed to be and I'm tracking and I'm collecting information and then I'm you know, spitting that information back out um, to tell our story, right? And to prove our efficacy, right? Well, you have been very generous with your time and I'd like to honor it the best I can. I only have three closing questions that I ask everybody. What is your one tip to make the world a better place? I think it's, it's very simple. Um, I, I would point to the golden rule, just mm. others like you would want to be treated because at the end of the day, we're all just human beings and yes. we, we all want to be treated a certain way. We want to be treated with respect, with dignity, with, with love. That, that would be my tip. Just the golden rule. It's as simple as that. It really is. So true. Just to remember our shared humanity. Mm-hmm. What are you the most thankful for right now? A second chance at life. Mm-hmm. I was a father when I went in. I was a father throughout, and I'm a father now. And mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate to have my, my daughter in my life. She's in college now. She lives with me. Fantastic. You know, I'm very fortunate to have rebuilt, and maybe not rebuilt, but just built a whole new relationship with her when I came home. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very thankful for having that understanding to be a better father, be a better person, um, so that I can be, be, be here for her. Uh, now, you know, now that I'm home, and I'm also very thankful for the job, for the work that I do. It's it's work, but it's not really work. It's just yeah. that I that I love to do. It's very rewarding, and I think I don't think a lot of people can say that. That's so true. I can tell. I can tell the joy that emanates from you when you speak about it, and the pride that you have in your work is my life self evident. My life is not easy, but it could be worse, mm-hmm. much much worse, and whatever challenges I may have at the end of the day, when I'm in bed and I'm getting ready to close my eyes, I'm like, I love my life. That's great to hear. And lastly, what is your favorite quote? It's a quote from Maya Angelou. My favorite quote is my mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive. Mm. And to with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. Love it. That is fantastic. Maya Angelou has been quoted a lot on this podcast. A lot of people love her. She's very relatable and she just has that way with words. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's a, it's a great quote. And contrary to what people may think, there's a lot of reading uh, that goes on in prison. Mm-hmm. So. Well, Ian, thank you so very much for 
telling us your story, for encouraging us, for just your time and this beautiful work that you do. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Again, thank you for sharing space with me and and just having taken the interest to learn more about uh, the work and uh, Mm -hmm. just this population in general. Ian's insight as to how the rest of society views and judges the incarcerated is spot on. I really appreciate his counter-argument against that mindset. I love how he appeals to our humanity by reminding us that they are just people who were shaped by a certain set of circumstances which eventually influenced who they became. It's not an excuse. It's just one explanation that helps us put the shoe on the other foot for a minute. What would you have done had you grown up in these set of circumstances? When we can see ourselves in the other, we tend to be a little less judgmental. I love that Ian brought up the topic of how he saw the world and himself differently as he educated himself. That's the whole point of education, isn't it? Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. is quoted as saying, The mind, once expanded by the dimensions of larger ideas, never returns to its original size. This is exactly what happened to Ian. He couldn't go back to being the person he was before he entered prison. Education had changed him. I wanted to stand up and cheer when Ian said, In life, in business, whatever it may be, you don't know what you want until you know who you are. What wisdom that is. This is why we need to work on personal development and growth and self-reflection no matter who we are or where we are in life. I like how he said that Defy is in the business of human development. They are reinvesting in humanity and they are doing it through entrepreneurial education. George Washington Carver once said, Education is the key that unlocks the golden door to freedom. Ian found this to be true inside the walls of prison. Education helps bring hope, direction, purpose, and the freedom to break down the walls of our own mental and emotional prisons we create for ourselves. May we all continue educating ourselves to not only better our own lives, but to help better the lives of others just as Ian has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.